Thank you, Nell. Let's open our Bibles to Genesis 35. Genesis 35, if you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, we'd love to get that from you. Paul and Martin will be heading at the aisle and would love to receive those. So glad that you're here and that you would share those concerns with us. As we come to this weekend, almost 250 years ago, the Declaration of Independence was signed. Uh, This momentous occasion set in motion the foundation of a new nation. Founding documents were written um, and drafted and ratified by the the states and by God's grace and providence, the American experiment, experiment has afforded great opportunity and blessing. On our nation's birthday, we should give thanks. We should give thanks to God for the blessings and freedoms we've enjoyed and From its inception, the United States has been influenced by biblical witness and and a a scriptural foundation. I'm not saying that we are a Christian nation. We know that's not true. Only that historically, we have been greatly influenced by the word of God and the claims of the gospel. We acknowledge that our country has not been free of injustices, evil policies, and laws. But our hope as believers has never been in our country, has it been? Our hope as believers is that our citizenship is in heaven where we await a savior to come for us. And so we live in a pluralistic and increasingly secular society which has exposed superficial and cultural Christianity and found it lacking. And so living at, a, at this time in history, I want to just ask the question this morning, as we come together on this uh, 4th of July, what's the greatest impact we can make as believers, as a church? Is it to form a political action group? Is it to mobilize a get out the vote campaign? Let's be clear, as Christians, we should participate in in the process. We should participate and vote our conscience. But is that our our mandate? Is that our calling? Um, Are these the goals that Christ has given his church? No, he's given us this commission uh, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And it begins with hearts that are set on fire uh, to serve him and to love him and to worship him. So this morning, I wanna give a charge to us with regard to our home life. I want to talk about establishing a family altar. I'm not talking about a shrine. I'm talking about a, a time of worship that you would be, if you're single, you, you, your home would be a place of worship. If you're married with children, it would be a place of worship and nurture. This morning, I want to give a charge uh, to this church family, which I believe is the single greatest way that we can make impact on our nation at a time of spiritual and moral decline. It was said, I think Charles Swindoll said it, that the church can seldom resurrect what the home puts to death. I would add to that, that that the church can seldom resurrect what the home minimizes by neglect. So would you consider with me this morning the need to establish worship within our homes? I, I really believe of all the things we could be talking about, there's several in this category, that it really is fighting upstream. It's really fighting the current. 
I knew coming into this message, this would not be one where I'm getting high fives in the foyer saying, way to go, pastor, that's a great message. I'm not expecting many this morning. Because this is uncomfortable. This really gets to the nub of the matter on how we really live. We come together as a church and I trust that that's something we all look forward to. I know I do. And I sense from you, you do as well. But there's something that's a bit surfacey about our gathering. We see each other, we're, we're dressed pr- probably the best that we dress all week. We come together and uh, it's high and it's grins and it's smiles, but at home, that's where life's lived out. And my fear is that there's a disconnect between what happens here and what happens at home. And so what I'm wanting to challenge us, regardless of your family makeup, is that your home would be a place of worship. And we look at Genesis 35, we'll come to that in just a moment, but I want to break down my thoughts this way, maybe your insert will help you with it, that family worship is something we see throughout the Word of God. Yes, there was a temple, yes, there was a tabernacle before it where worshipers would come under the Old Covenant. In the New Testament, in the infancy of the church, there would be churches meeting in houses. Paul spoke of Aquila and Priscilla in 1 Corinthians 16, and and he said as a parting shot to the Corinthian church, Aquila and Priscilla greet you and the church that meets in their house. We know in his letter to Philemon, he referenced the church in his house that met in his house. Often because of persecution, often because of the infancy of the church, this is where God's people met. And we would do well to recover some of that. Small group fellowship, spending time together, opening our hearts and our homes for hospitality, not only to invite other members into our our church, into our homes, but also our neighbors for the purpose of sharing the gospel. In recent weeks, we've looked at Job, and we saw that he was a man who cared about his kids, who worshiped the Lord, and when they would gather together and they would feast, Job would, would, would seek the Lord on their behalf, concerned for their spiritual well-being. We looked recently at Joshua, who said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What do you think went on in Joshua's house? Worship went on in Joshua's house. Talking about the things of God went on in Joshua's house. And then we looked at Asaph in Psalm 78 about passing on a legacy of faith from one generation to the next. This is spiritual work. This is dying to self because we're wired to compartmentalize our lives and say, well, we went to church. Let's put that on the shelf now and move on to other things. And what this sends is a fractured witness. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, when you enter into your closet, there's a time to enter your closet. And there's a time to gather with the body. And worship should happen in both places. And it should not be such a disconnect that it communicates something we don't intend. Jacob whose father was Isaac, whose grandfather was Abraham, was the 
born as a twin, Esau the older brother. Jacob came forth and the, prophet, the prophecy, the, the Lord gave a word that the older will serve the younger. And so Jacob would be the chosen one to carry on God's redemptive line. And so he was known as a, a difficult person. He wasn't a likable man. You read the narrative of, of, of Jacob. He was a heel grabber. He was grabbing his brother's heel coming out of the womb. And his journey in God's redemptive plan was bumpy. But God's grace is seen in his life. Admittedly, um, we would have never picked Jacob. But that's why we're not God. And so his flaws are well documented on the pages of Scripture. He had a difficult time with um, Laban, Uncle Laban, and um, eventually broke free from him and began to go back to the land that God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So in reading the book of Genesis, uh, I have you in Genesis 35, but in Genesis 34, Jacob's still reeling. His daughter Dinah had been raped, and it was a time of shame and sorrow. And with this violation, the sons of Jacob took matters into their own hands and, and uh, killed the, those responsible. They simply said in verse 7 of chapter 34, such a thing ought not to be done. And so it was, a, it was a time of terror. It was a time of unrest. It was a time of shame. It was a time of sorrow. And then with a switch of focus... We go into chapter 35 and it's really all about God and it's all about God's call in Jacob's life. The shame and crimes of chapter 34 lead to fresh beginnings in chapter 35. And this is what I'm wanting you to see, believer, that God brings seasons of refreshing in our life even when we come through great trials or even if our heart's far away from the Lord. God calls Jacob to go back to Bethel and Bethel was the place that God first revealed himself in, to Jacob in Genesis 28. He called Jacob to go back to Bethel where I appeared to you when you were running from your brother Esau. So he's returning to God's promises in verse 1. Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you. Make an altar there, a place where you're going to meet with the Lord and Jacob worshiped the Lord. And so God calls him back in full circle to remember the blessings of walking with God and being surrendered to him. God's nearness was felt. And just as he presented himself to the Lord, it says in verse 7 uh, that the place would be called El Bethel when God first appeared to Jacob in a vision of the latter. Jacob called the place the house of God. And so with this altar came a need to put off things, put off sinful things. Look at verse two. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods. It's amazing how idols can stack up in our life. How they can just stack up and we don't, we begin to not even see them. And so he said to his household, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. It was a call to consecrate, 
to set ourselves apart, to serve the Lord. When's the last time we've ever really thought about that? Yes, we think of the grace of Jesus Christ, that God sent his son, that Jesus came from heaven to earth, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross a substitutionary death. And the message to men and women everywhere right now in real time this day is to repent of your sins and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our mediator. He is the one who reconciles us to God. There's salvation in no other name, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He is the way, He's the truth, and He's the life. And we think of that wonderful grace, that position we have with God that is not based on our flaws and inconsistencies and failures, but is based on the solid rock of who He is and what He's accomplished, and that whoever believes in him will never be disappointed the scriptures say he's not a false savior he's a true savior and he will lead you home and so we think of this wonderful grace in Christ and sometimes we are not really good at examining our hearts examining what's going on in our life what we're giving ourselves to what we're watching and viewing and seeing and saying how we spend our evenings and our days. So he says to his family, put away the foreign gods. And it's interesting, they knew exactly what he was talking about. We need a purge. We need a cleansing. Joshua said to the people in his day, consecrate yourselves. Set yourselves apart for the Lord and for his service. And when God called Jacob back to Bethel, Jacob recognized that this was a time to renew his dedication to the Lord. Idols creep in and they need to be dealt with. Well, that was an Old Testament problem. We might be tempted to say, no, it's alive and well now, but it was alive and well in the New Testament. The, The Apostle John said, little children, guard yourselves from idols. And John closes his first letter with this warning, guarding the flock against the devastation of idolatry, whether it's work or money or entertainment or sports or academics or anything that may have virtue and value with the right balance in our life can be out of balance in a hurry. Idolatry is a value system that we create in which we esteem something to be more worthy of our devotion than devotion to God. And because of idolatry, Israel failed to enter into the promised land. God warned of idolatry in the Ten Commandments. He said, I'm a jealous God. And that's good, he is. Because the greatest good we could ever know is living for his glory. So why do people try to find comfort in their idols? Well, it... It gives a sense of assurance. It gives a sense of confidence. It gives a sense of satisfaction, at least for a while. It gives a sense of identity. And instead of finding our identity in Christ, we find our identity in other things. And God calls us to put that off and to know the joy of his salvation. And so what Jacob experienced here at Bethel was a changed life. It was a renewal in his life. And from consecration, we come to purification of verses two through four, the effects upon Jacob's family of their behavior with the, uh, uh, the Shechemites who raped Dinah and caused so much heartache. Um, 
the, the idols have crept into their own family. So I'm just wondering, do, do you recognize that in your life? In your home? Things that are idolized? Things you, you value more than your devotion to God? That's an ongoing battle, isn't it? It should be. Do we have the courage to remove them? And so, God said to Jacob, come back to Bethel. Build an altar there. Consecrate yourself. Know the purification of, uh, of my redeeming grace. And there, it was a place of new beginnings. New beginnings. Verse 5, as they journeyed, a terror from the Lord, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. You know what that's called? That's called favor. That's God's favor. That's something you and I can't uh, uh, manufacture on our own. God's favor and protection over them. God gave him a new name in verse 10. God said to him, your name is, is Jacob. No longer shall it be Jacob, but now it's going to be Israel, which means um, to strive or to contend. It was given to him back in Genesis 32 when he wrestled with the angel. Jacob means heel grabber, deceiver. Um, Israel means one who struggles with God. A new name, a fresh word. Verses 11 and 12, I'm God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. And he brings him back to the covenant he made with Abraham and Isaac to be fruitful. And he reveals himself to Jacob as his all-sufficient Savior. He uses this beautiful name of God found in Scripture called El Shaddai. El Shaddai, God Almighty, the one who nurtures us, the one who watches over us. And here we see powerful things happen as they begin anew with the Lord. Anybody here need to begin anew? You need to go back to Bethel in your life? You need to set aside some time to think through your commitments to the living God? I'm so thankful the Lord through His grace, receives us back. There's an old hymn entitled, Lord, I'm Coming Home. I'm Coming Home. Which is back to him. I've wandered far away from God, now I'm coming home. The paths of sin too long I've trod. Lord, I'm coming home. I've wasted many precious years. You know, the sorrow of sin is often the waste we feel afterwards. Blown, missed opportunities because we were somewhere else doing our own thing. I'm, I've wasted many precious years. Now I'm coming home. I now repent with bitter tears. Lord, I'm coming home. I love this stanza in particular. Lord, my soul is sick my heart is sore. Now I'm coming home. My strength renew, my home restore. Lord, I'm coming home. That's where Jacob was in Genesis 35. What about you? Is Jesus Christ calling you back to your Bethel? Is he saying to you this morning, enough with this compromised living. I'm either the Lord of your life or I'm not. Him calling you off the fence to live sold out for Him, to speak for Him, to live for Him. In the private areas of your life, you're worshiping Him and giving yourself to Him every day.
Well, I think Jacob's example, it's amazing what can happen in family worship, huh? And when God calls you together, build an altar, talk to me. I want to get really practical for the remainder of this message. And I want to talk secondly about family worship in your home. Why do we need to do that? It ought to be self-evident. We've looked at an example of that in Genesis 35. We've seen an example in, in what we read in Joshua 24. Again, I think that home is where life's bills are come due, right? And children grow, can grow up under a routine. We can enter into routines where we're, we go through motions and we go, we go to church because we know we're supposed to and maybe we're duty-bound and we should come duty-bound even when we don't feel like it. And when we don't feel like it, and I'm kind of locked in, so I'm here every week, but I have to do, do battle with my own heart saying, Lord, would you break up my heart of stone? Would you take this cold heart of mine and may I worship you? Because that is, that is proving what is excellent to him. And so I want to talk about you, you and your family establishing a family altar, establishing family worship, engaging in, let's just for starter's sake, 10, 15, 20 minutes a day to sit down to read the scriptures and to pray. This is making investments in the life of your family. Family worship gives opportunity, friends. It gives opportunity to speak the gospel into your children's lives every day it gives you opportunity for them to learn the things of God if you're looking for resources we have them galore I told your brother Jeremy we're going to be talking about the family altar today he's got so many resources we have so many resources here and some of them you don't even have to reinvent the wheel just go over the material that they, your children have received in connect group or the sermon insert but to make plans to get there as a family. It gives opportunity to pass on core beliefs that your Christianity is not just a Sunday event. Your Christianity is every day of your life living for Jesus Christ. I came across the story of Rick Husband who was a man who had the resolve of Jacob. Rick Husband was the commander of the space shuttle Columbia and among the seven astronauts killed in February 2003, when the spacecraft broke apart and disintegrated over Texas just 16 minutes from their landing in Florida. The day after the tragedy, a memorial service was held for 45-year-old Rick Husband and fellow astronauts in Houston. And at the service, a video was played where Rick Husband said, if I, end up, if I ended up at the end of my life having been an astronaut, but having sacrificed my family along the way or living my life in a way that didn't glorify God, then I would look back on it with great regret. Having become an astronaut would not really have mattered all that much. And I finally came to realize that what really meant the most to me was to try and live my life the way God wanted me to and to try to and be a good husband to Evelyn and to be a good father to my children. But there's more to Rick Husband's resolve to be a good husband and a father. 
than mere words. A week prior to leaving for the, the flight crew's quarantine, Commander Husband turned to his wife, Evelyn, and said, I want to make a video for Laura, his daughter, and one for Matthew that they can watch each day I'm in orbit. I want the children to know how much I love them and that I'll be thinking of them every day. At the beginning of the tape, he left with his seven-year-old son, Matthew. Husband said on the video, Hi, Matthew, I wanted to tell you how much I love you, and I wanted to make this tape for you so that you and I could have a devotion time for every day that I'm in space. So what I'm doing is I'm looking at your devotional book and I'm starting on the 16th of January, which is our launch day. And what I will do is read through the book and read the Bible verse also and go through the whole thing just like you. And I, you and I are sitting here on the couch together. I just wanted to do this because I love you so much and I'm going to do one for your sister as well. How precious do you think those 18 devotions on video are to that family today? Isn't this the kind of legacy you want to leave your family? Isn't family worship what you really want to do? Not only that, it's an opportunity for them to see positive spiritual example, for the children to see a workable, reproducible Christian home and in, in process and to get the family together on a daily basis. How about that? Well, how do we do this? It's not complicated. Uh, it really isn't. It's not rocket science. If you have a Bible and a will to do it, you just get together and you do it. And husbands, fathers, to say, you know, I'm really convicted after Pastor Jim's sermon this morning that we haven't been worshiping the Lord the way we should in our home. And so that's going to change. And so tonight we're going to begin reading the Bible together. And we're going to read a chapter together. And we're going to talk about it and we're going to pray together. That would be a start, wouldn't it? You don't need a degree to do that. You just need a heart to do it. It's not complicated. You don't need to go to seminary to do it. You don't need some advanced training to do it. Just start. See where the current's coming in and fighting upstream. Because some of you are saying, no, I ain't doing that. Not doing it. You can make all the biblical argumentation you want. I'm not doing it. Shame on you. What an opportunity blown. You're heaping a lot of guilt. No, not guilt. I pray conviction to see the lost opportunity of that beginning in our, our home. Now, I want to expand on this a little bit. What do you do? Well, I mentioned already reading the Scripture and praying. Uh, I would urge you to bring singing into that. Oh, yes, singing. Yes, singing. Now, that's quite a hurdle, isn't it? Get you a hymnal. Get you a songbook with your favorite choruses in it, and sing to the Lord. Listen to Psalm 118, verse 15. <clears throat> the voice of rejoicing and salvation in the tents of the righteous. The, Psalm 118, 15. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. 
Do you sing to the Lord? It's the mark of true devotion to Him. You know, we're commanded to sing to one another. Did you know that? In Ephesians 5, where he says, be filled with the Holy, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And then pray together. Scripture, song, prayer. Thomas Brooks, one of the Puritans said, this is powerful. A family that does not pray habitually together is like a home without a roof, open and exposed to all the storms of heaven. What's it like to go a week without prayer in your home? What does that communicate to to the family? Whether you're a single parent, husband, father, mother, wife, to go a week without praying together? Feel the current with that? I do. This, we chafe against this. This is one of the hardest disciplines in the Christian life. But I'm convinced is one of the greatest ways we can make impact not only in the building up of the church of Jesus Christ, but this nation that's lost is that we would have the power of God upon us as a people who love the Lord. I mentioned resources a moment ago. If your children are young, the big picture story Bible is a wonderful resource. We have them here um, to bring in catechism questions. Brother Jeremy gave me a copy of our uh, uh, Baptist catechism. That would be something I would commend to you as well. It's been quite a challenge for us. We're working on it right now. Memorizing scripture from Awana, from Bible drill. Memorizing scripture as a family. That can be quite fun. Learning the gospel, getting one of the tracks in our foyer and bringing this into family worship, and learning, learning how to communicate the gospel. Reading other books like Pilgrim's Progress, Christian Classics. There are practical considerations. I want to talk about them. I want to emphasize the importance of regularity. Establish a time that works. You know what I find when we establish a time that works? Things come up, don't they? This is what I would want you to gird your loins with, to use a biblical term, and that is, okay, it didn't work out now for this reason, but we're we're gonna hit it again. We're gonna keep coming back to it. I understand there are times when it seems like the ox is in the ditch every other night, but this will be the priority and we will get there. We'll look at other ways to meet, to establish a time that works, schedules, travel demands, take you off course, get back there. Joel Beakey uh, said recently in a sermon I listened to, what a dreadful thing to do, to claim to be a Christian and to have no earnest prayer with your family day by day to the God you profess as your all in all. Get there. Brevity. 
Family worship doesn't need to be eternal to have an impact. <laughs> doesn't have to be eternal, especially with little children. And so 15, 20 minutes as a starting point, and as your children get, this becomes a practice, and your children get older, this can be a great way to engage and talk about issues and doctrine and how they come together in your life. So this is not a call to open the Bible right before Thanksgiving dinner and exposit the intricacies to the book of Ezekiel while the gravy develops a thick, you know, topping on it. That's not what we're talking about. Using a sense of judgment, regularity, brevity, and, and flexibility. I appreciated Don Whitney's book, Family Worship. I think it might be in our library. But if not, I bet it'll be there soon. So, toddlers are going to fidget. Teenagers can be lethargic. Whitney urges, when you're hoping for a holy moment or trying to talk to your children about salvation in Jesus, siblings will quarrel, inexplicable laughter will erupt, or the family pet will walk in and barf. Since this is likely the scenario for almost every occurrence of family worship, you'll be tempted to think you're doing it wrong or that your family just isn't ready for family worship and you'll want to quit. Don't. Some of our biggest fights have come right in the context of family worship. Well, I shouldn't be surprised. It's spiritual warfare. You feel the current, friends? Do you feel it? This is where the battle must be won, in the private places of your life. So, regularity, brevity, flexibility, and determination. I also appreciated Whitney's charge to fathers and husbands. If you've been negligent in this duty, and great privilege, repent by starting family worship today. Fight the awkwardness by simply saying, God's convicted me of my responsibility to lead our family in worship. And we're going to do it right now. With a right heart attitude. Family members, have a willing spirit. Kids, don't resist your parents when they're wanting to lead in this way. Support them. Maybe you're single. Resolve to begin a time of worship in your young adult life. And if you become engaged, may that be the centerpiece of your engagement as you, as you seek the Lord together in prayer and in the Word of God. When your children are grown and the nest is empty, show your adult children that your newly begun practice of family worship or your sustained practice of family worship is the core of your being. And something else, if you're not doing this now and you're older and your kids are out of, the, out of the nest and they hear, mom and dad are reading the Bible. Wow. That will encourage them more than I can express. They're reading the Bible. They're spending time in prayer. It will encourage them to take a look at their own life. Maybe you're saying, yeah, but yeah, but what? What if the father isn't a Christian? Well, maybe you could ask the unbelieving husband and father if they would participate 
Who knows? They might say yes. We're reading the Gospel of John, a chapter night. And by the way, you can make the reading uh, participatory in this way. Everyone reads a verse. Who can read? Everybody's involved. They've got to pay attention because their turn's coming up. Ask him if he'd be a part of it. Many unbelieving husbands will not be interested. The mom can fill the gap in such cases. What if there's no father at home? The responsibility of spiritual nurture in the home falls to the mother. Remember Lois and Eunice? They're mentioned in 2 Timothy 1.5. When, when the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt in your, first in your grandmother Lois and also in your mother Eunice, and I know now is in you. Timothy's father was an unbeliever. But his mother was a believer. His grandmother was a believer. You are where you are, and God is with you. Redeem the time. What if the children are young? All the more reason to start. Patience and perseverance is the key. Setting expectations to sit still and pay attention. That needs to start early. They don't just get that. That's something they need to be trained to do. What if there's a wide range of ages among the children? There's lots of creative things that can be done with regard to that. What if, you're ch- what if there are no children at home? Again, I think of 1 Peter 3. Husbands, live with your li- wives in an understanding way, showing honor to her that you may walk together in the grace of life. I'll close with this. Joel Beakey, he and his siblings were celebrating his parents' 50th wedding anniversary. And he said, all five of us children decided to express thanks to our father and mother for one thing without consulting each other. Remarkably, all five of us thanked our mother for her prayers and all five of us thanked our father for his leadership of family worship. Then he said, my brother said to my father, dad, The oldest memory I have is of tears streaming over your face as you taught us from the Pilgrim's Progress on Sunday evenings how the Holy Spirit leads believers. When I was only three, God used you in family worship, Dad, to convict me that Christianity was real. No matter how far I went astray in later years, and he did, though today he's an elder in his church, I could never seriously question the reality of Christianity and I want to thank you for that. Talk about making a deposit of treasure in the life of your family. Maybe so. It's not complicated. The issue is, will we do it? And our hope is not in spiritual disciplines, whether it be family worship or anything else. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. We do all these things so that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of him who loved us and gave himself for us. If you've not given your heart to Christ, I would point you to him. He's a wonderful savior and an awesome God. And he will give you new beginnings by his grace. Would you pray with me? As we enter into this close of our service, I thank you for your attention and for you allowing me this morning to share these things. I I felt a connection here today and pray that God's spirit would rivet these things on our mind and in our hearts and lead us to take action.
But the greatest action that you could take is response in faith to Christ. He is alive. He reigns in heaven. He's coming back again. His spirit is with us now so that he could promise that wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there too. He knows everything about you. Would you surrender to him today? Would you repent of your sins and begin again? Would you come back to, maybe this morning would be your Bethel where God reveals himself to you and speaks to your heart. Maybe you are a believer and it's a time to come home. Your heart is sore. Lord, we pray in these closing moments that it would be a time of surrender to you and that you would be glorified in this church and in our homes. And we thank you for our nation and we pray, Lord, for a spiritual awakening. May we be used as instruments in your hand for such a glorious purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.